Hello and welcome to Science Shambles. Producer Trent here. As you will no doubt remember from previous episodes and previous announcements, uh, we presented the comedy play Signals at lots of festivals uh, during the summer at Latitude and Blue Dot and Cheltenham and all over the place. Uh, and after a lot of those performances, we had some talks and panels uh, talking about some of the science that is within that play. The play is all about, uh, it's set in a radio telescope and it's all about searching for alien life. And so after the performance, we had discussions around some of those topics. And that's what today's episode is. This is recorded at the Blue Dot Festival with uh, Helen Chersky, Chris Lintot, Matthew Cobb and Susie Imber. Before we get to that, uh, if you didn't get to see Signals at one of the festivals, it is on tour throughout October with uh, Footprint Theatre and co-presented with us at the Cosmic Shambles Network. We'll be at the Norwich Science Festival. That will be followed by another talk uh, like this with uh, Professor Lucy Green giving that talk. And then you can also catch the show in Sheffield and York and Newcastle and lots of other places. Check out cosmicshambles.com slash signals for all those dates and Cosmic Shambles for all the other events we've got going on, such as Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People. All the people on this panel will be involved with at least one of those shows. So go and check that out. And our Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Uh, all your pledges there get you lots of goodies and stuff, but also goes to helping us produce all the stuff we do at Cosmic Shambles. So enjoy today's episode recorded live at the Blue Dot Festival earlier this summer. Here is your host, Dr. Helen Chersky. It is lovely to be, it's nice to have an audience that looks so relaxed already. I'm not sure what we're going to do to you. You can make the measure of this podcast either by why that you're even more relaxed by the end or that you're now really stressed and terrified because you think the aliens are going to arrive tomorrow. Um, we've got a fabulous panel here, so for those of you that don't know the Science Shambles podcast, we talk about lots of interesting sciencey things on a range of topics, and the game is to get at the, the interesting bits under the surface that you might not hear about otherwise. Um, and so we have, starting at the far side, I guess you've got Professor Chris Lintot from the University of Oxford, who anyone who's had anything to do with the Zooniverse um, ecosystem will have come across him, I'm sure, and there's a proper, proper astronomer as well. Um, Dr Susie Imber, who's at the University of Leicester, and who uses radar to do fascinating things. And um, you're Professor? Yes, yes Professor Matthew Cobb from the University of Manchester. I should have checked that, right? Who knows, uh, who many, uh, you're, he's, he's the local. Well, I was local. I, I grew up in Altrincham, but I'm not local anymore. Anyway, so he is uh, based at the University of Manchester and knows all about life. Something like that. No pressure there, right? And, and so we're here to talk about sort of you know alien life how we might know it's there what it might look like why should we bother looking for it all those sorts of things um and i thought we would start with who who should be looking for alien life uh, because chris doesn't think it's him right? no i mean <laughs> yes i'm going to subvert the entire podcast to begin with so sorry about that um, i'm an astronomer and when um you tell people you're an astronomer they either ask you if you know brian cox which is frustrating and upsetting <laughs> Um, or, I'll, t I'll talk more about that later, or they ask whether you found aliens. And if you tell them anything, if I tell you that uh, the Juno probe was swept down just a few hundred kilometers above Jupiter's cloud tops, if I tell you that we found uh, a planet around a nearby star, as we did a few weeks ago, if you tell them that you've looked at galaxies in the distant universe, they turn around and they go, yeah, but could there be life there? And it's a boring question. <laughs> Uh, and I want to encourage everyone to, to, to think about the astronomy and, and the sort of a universe that's grander than whether it's got six foot tall aliens wandering around wanting to shake our hands. Uh, yeah, I think that's a fair point. I, I think it's really interesting that everyone is so focused on aliens because no one wants to hear that there aren't aliens, right? Everyone wants... I was at um, Latitude yesterday and there's a small child who's a friend of mine uh, and her mum said, oh, and Helen is going to be doing a, you know, a thing on aliens. And the kid said, I think they exist. That was her first, she's four years old, first reaction. I think aliens exist, so confident. Um, Matthew, is it you that should be thinking about whether alien life exists? Is it the job of the biologists? Well, I think it's the job of the biologists to give some guidance to the planetary scientists, or the people who are actually doing the hard work, either by sending devices on, onto planets or around planets, to think about what life is and how we could detect it. And the simple answer is... 
There's no straightforward definition of what life is. Biologists, biologists don't really care much about definitions. Philosophers of science get very cross when we say we don't care. We know it when we see it. But that's the point. What, how could we detect it? So the difficulty is, all we can really say is, this is what life on Earth looks like. And if aliens are vaguely like that, then they should show signs of respiration, changes in methane levels, and so on. And I think by combining biology and planetary science, we can come up with some good guesses as to what we should be looking for. So, Susie, you're, you're wearing the planetary science hat yep. here, I guess. Yep. What, what does your expertise have to contribute to this? So uh, I'm a planetary scientist, and what we do is design instrumentation and build it and then send it to the other planets in our solar system. So um, what we need to know from you is what we should be looking for. What should our instrument be able to, to see if we were going to find any evidence? And what accuracy do we need to make those measurements? And where would be a good place to look? And all of these things. And when we know from you what we should be looking for, <laughs> then we can build the thing that's going to find it, and then we can send it out and have a look. So actually, it's a huge combined effort, really. And then my people could get involved as well, because, of course, we now know that most stars have planets. And for planets around nearby stars, um, we may be able to build instruments that tell us about the atmosphere. So if you, the trouble, and, and so you look for signs of life in the atmosphere. And I need both of you, because I need a biologist to tell me which signs might be those of life. And then I need to understand the planets perfectly to be able to say that it's not life. There's this detection at the minute of methane on Mars, excess methane on Mars. And is it geological? Is it biological? Is it a mistake? We, we're not sure. And it, it, we're in this fuzzy area where we have a result and we've no idea what it means. And it's actually a good time to have this discussion because uh, in two weeks time, it will be James Lovelock's 100th birthday. And some of you, you may or may not have heard of James Lovelock. He came up with Gaia theory, which basically was the start of Earth system science um, in some ways. And Gaia became known for this idea that it, the planet might be conscious. He moved on from that quite quickly. But he started thinking about Gaia and about the nature of life on Earth because he was thinking about how to look for life on other planets. Um, so maybe we should start at the beginning, right? What You said we don't know what life is, which I will tell you as a physicist is unhelpful. <laughs> but God, not my fault. How, how did, how, let's, let's start with the life we do know on Earth, and how, how do we think that started? What were, what were the crucial steps that took to get from that to nothing to us? So I, I said we haven't got a definition. NASA's got a definition. NASA's definition is a system, a self-replicating system, that shows Darwinian evolution. So they, they've got a quite vague and not very helpful way of thinking about life. As far as we know, life began on Earth deep in the oceans around about 3.6, 3.8 billion years ago, where self-replicating molecules were able to get energy, probably from what are called proton gradients, as uh, water of different alkalinity met itself, met these two currents would meet, and you get an exchange of protons. So there's some free energy floating So I'm about. just going to interrupt you there, because there was a very important word in there that sneaked in, which is self-replicating. Yeah. That, that is the key to all of this, right? Just say a little bit about why well, that's important. It, it is, I mean, if you can see, I'm wearing a DNA double helix, helix made out of a, a bicycle chain. Uh, but the DNA double helix, you can see how it can copy itself. One strand is complementary to the other. And that was something that Jim Watson was obsessed about when he was trying to find the structure of DNA, because we know that life copies itself. But on the other hand, crystals do. So replication is not solely a condition of life. On the other hand, it is a necessary condition. Other, other forms of matter will also show replication. And indeed, DNA can't copy itself on its own. It needs bazillions of different enzymes to be able to do it. So it's, it's quite, a complicated, quite a complicated thing. And I think most scientists now think that DNA and proteins, so all the world that we're used to, we can see all around us, the only kind of life we know now, that's not how life began. Life began with another molecule called RNA, which is a bit like half a DNA uh, double helix, which can act, is in your cells now and is doing all sorts of astonishing things, and it acts as an enzyme, so it changes the speed of chemical reactions. So we think the first kind of life would have been these molecules of RNA that can copy themselves and can act on the world. So there's no genetic genes, no genetic code, no proteins, just molecules changing external factors, and probably in some kind of tiny little vesicle in a rock deep in the ocean, because you've got to be protected. 
molecules, the universe is very, very big, molecules are so tiny. So to be able to find each other, they've got to be really, really tightly contained. So what else, so what happens next? So we get, because that's the step people first talk about, is how you get this, these quite complex molecules already, but you've still got a long way to go before you get to us. Well, those molecules will spontaneously form. So RNA can spontaneously form in the laboratory, and at least once it spontaneously formed on, on Earth. Perhaps it's happened again. So there may be, Darwin wrote, suggested this, that perhaps life evolved more than once. If it evolved again, we ate it. It might be happening now, but, you know, bacteria would just gobble that, that carbon up because that's, you know, that we just, life just consumes carbon, keeps it moving. So if a new carbon-based life form turned up, it would get eaten very, very quickly. See, I thought astronomers were bleak sometimes, <laughs> but there's something really depressing about new life, a new form of life on the Earth getting eaten instantly. Well, Sorry, carry on. I that's, just, that's you know, just, I just... Life's just stuff eating other stuff. You know, better get used <laughs> to it. And you heard it from a professor of biology right here. Go and, go and have your food from the food stores and feel better about Keep yourself. Keep the carbon moving. That's the key yeah. thing. <laughs> it's all about recycling. Okay, so, but then there are, so later on, so the other big, there are a few bottlenecks along the way. So let's go through those bottlenecks, the big ones. Well, once you've got, so once you, in the kind of life that we're used to, you've got to go from RNA to DNA, and DNA is a very stable molecule. RNA is very, very fragile. So that's one reason it would have happened deep in the ocean, away from the sun's rays. And DNA enables the cell, with the help of RNA, to make proteins. And then you can do anything. Then you can be any shape. All the life that you see around is made of proteins. It can be any astonishing molecules. And that's all in your genetic code. So you've then got, for about 2 billion years, this stuff just floating around in the ocean. Eventually, it learns how to photosynthesize, which is very good. So you can go higher up into the uh, ocean, uh, get sunlight, have a cell that protects you from the X-rays, all the rays that are coming down, cosmic rays. But then you've got to do something which, we only, as far as we know, only happened once, and that's two cells collided of different kinds, and they formed a very strange hybrid cell, and that's you and everything we see around us. We are all those weird hybrids where, by chance, two of these cells encountered. So one of the arguments for there being life elsewhere, and why your little girl was so confident, I guess, is that the universe is really big. I mean, immensely big. So just by chance, there must be life. But if we think about multicellular life, for that, as far as we know, you have to have this special kind of cell. And that just happened once in 3.5 billion years. So if you just imagine how many... You cannot count the number of bacteria and single-celled organisms in the ocean and how often they're bumping into each other. And that's carrying on. It's been going on for all that time, but just once on a Tuesday afternoon, about one and a half billion years ago, two billion years ago, something amazing happened. And then natural selection worked on Tuesdays are good days, aren't yeah. they? Right, Chris, let's just talk about the probabilities here. We've heard it's... Un because there's two probabilities. There's the how unlikely it is that that has happened, yeah. and then how many opportunities it had. So tell us about yeah, the opportunities. So, so this is another reason not to ask astronomers about aliens, because I, I feel like we've done our job. Because I think if we'd been having this discussion um, 10, 15 years ago, the big question will be, would have been how many homes for life exist in the universe, and, and you know whether, the, whether we're in a special place here, a, a planet that's a kind of temperature that gives you liquid water, that has plate tectonics, that, that um, has land and, and so on. And w what we know now that we didn't know a decade ago is that uh, planets are staggeringly common in the, the galaxy. So to give you an idea, our galaxy has 100 billion stars. A really conservative estimate is that there are probably 20 billion Earth-like planets, rocky planets in about this sort of temperate zone. If you want to relax that, uh, and be a bit more creative where you might live as an alien, then, then you're talking many more planets than there are stars. And I think relaxing that criteria is perfectly sensible. In, in our solar system, we think about Earth as habitable, Mars as maybe on the edge, Venus maybe in the past, but no longer. But the habitable places in the solar system extend all the way out to the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, where we've got ice moons with oceans. And so you don't need to be on a rocky planet to have the kind of place where the chemistry uh, can happen. So what we know is that we've bought lots of lottery tickets, right? The, the almost every, I would bet that almost every star in the galaxy has somewhere that would be a candidate for life in orbit around it. The question is, how likely are you to win the lottery? And unless you know that, we can't answer the question of how common life would be. So let's just talk about some of the environments that exist in our solar system without dealing... Because that actually gives us a nice range of how... I think we... 
I mean, it's certainly obvious from the sci-fi movies of the 60s and 70s, they assumed life was basically like us, but with a different shaped head. Um, but the, the number, like, there are an enormous range of possible conditions. So let's, within our own solar system, what, without, you know, broadly within the sorts of, so we know we need an energy source, we need something that is um, kicking things out of equilibrium, so some recycling going on, we need a protected place, there's these basic things. Where are the places in our solar system, Susie, that where you might, which are interesting? Well, I think they fall into a couple of categories, actually. So the first category that we're all very aware of is Mars. So the idea that actually the Martian environment, there might have been liquid water. We found evidence of liquid water under the surface now. Perhaps at some point in its history, there were large lakes of liquid water on Mars. Um, one really important factor that often gets overlooked um, is the magnetic field of Mars. And so what you actually need as well is you need some protection from the radiation. And the protection for us here on the Earth is our own magnetic field. And now Mars used to have a magnetic field. We have strong evidence of this. We know this to be the case. Probably a global dynamo like we have on the Earth. And then about four billion years ago, that switched off. And we actually just sent a mission recently, which we were talking about earlier, called InSight, which has gone to Mars to try to find the answer to why their dynamo switched off on Mars. I say there, like there are people there that should be concerned, but why That's Mars' a dynamo switched off? Making, yeah, isn't yeah. It? Like, because if, so, if Earth switched off tomorrow, we'd have a problem. We'd have a massive problem. Yeah, but there's yeah, no sign yeah. of it doing that. Right? No, 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 I'm not. But no. I just wanted to say on no. Insight, my favourite thing about Insight, because it's a geophysics mission, it's trying to work out the, about the interior of Mars. They deliberately sent it to the most boring place they could think of, because <laughs> they wanted a nice flat plane. Yeah. So there's this <laughs> beautiful press conference the day before the landing, where the, the principal investigator was asked, "So why did you pick your your target site?" And he said, "Because it looks a bit like a car park." And you could see next to him, the NASA PR person had their head in their hands. Uh, but that's where you want to go. If you want to make a clean experiment, you need a well, simple place. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I well, no, no. The other yeah. thing about the reason they did that as well is that um, the, the mission, now we're going a bit astray, but the mission's really interesting. It's got a robotic arm and it picks up experiments and it puts them on the surface. And so you want to make sure that you don't land on a pile of rocks whereby you aren't going to be able to lift your experiment and put it down. Anyway, it's designed to tell us, as you said, about... I've suddenly got this interior. terrible picture of a, ro of a Mars robot doing the Tommy Cooper sketch. <laughs> <laughs> Where is very slowly? Is the life under that one? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. The next Mars rover should be called Tommy Cooper for this reason. Um, so the magnetic field is important. That's one one aspect. And Mars is obviously a, a place that we've been looking for a long time. Um, the other place that's interesting, uh, again, we were talking about this slightly earlier, was, is the moons of the gas giants. So. We're thinking specifically about moons like Enceladus and Titan, Saturn's moons, and Europa, one of Jupiter's moons. Um, both of the gas giant planets have uh, the order of 60-something moons. Um, but there are some that are really interesting to us. So Enceladus is a great example because we've taken some data there. We sent, Sat we sent Cassini there. And it was looking at, 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 Cassini, at, at um, Enceladus because it's an ice moon. So it's got a big ice crust around the outside. And there's evidence gathered that there's um, an ocean underneath. So there's liquid underneath that, that ice crust. Um, and, and the ice crust actually has cracks in it. And out of those cracks, we get some material that's kind of being vomited out of the, of the cracks, technical term. And uh, we flew instruments through it to, to find out what this stuff was that was coming out of the cracks and discovered some quite incredible things. Um, for example, we found... Uh, CH4, we found methane. Yeah, let's come back to that. Let's go to ah. all the places first. Okay, all so yeah, it's all this Titan. Titan's this methane place. Europa, yeah. Ganymede has ice. Oh, yeah. Can we get a bit weirder? Uh, yeah. What about... Why are you um, asking me permission? People, if people remember Cosmos uh, with Carl Sagan, there were immense... Uh, I think it was in Cosmos, but you, ha you can imagine like hydrogen-breathing jellyfish in the atmospheres of Jupiter. And maybe right. Saturn. Now, are we considering that a habitat? Yeah, for well, he said, so, looking at the biologists. So we've got, so we've got an ocean which is water, which is salty. Yeah. We've got there's a methane ocean somewhere. Yeah, that's right? Titan. So that's so there's liquid water, there's liquid methane. Yeah. What else have we got? To well, we've play got with? Mars is a dry desert now, but was Earth-like. Yeah. So that's my question, really. Are we restricting ourselves to to life that wants water and oxygen, or, or can we, can we can my giant jellyfish? Well, it's the only kind we know. Right. So n equals one with all the limits, but it is n. So if you want to be confident that it could work rather than just speculating, uh, then I think that's probably wise. So Mars is okay, or was okay, but now isn't. Venus, our evil twin, Way too hard. might have been yeah. okay at the beginning, and then wasn't, no? No longer, yeah. Okay, so one, one of the problems, I think, for example, about Jupiter, and 
jellyfish floating up and down is all the radioactivity that oh that's is, true yeah you know, so that's going to fry yeah. any okay. you know any kind of a complicated molecule is going to get ripped apart Fine. i don't think carl knew okay about so that. no no jovian jellyfish i suspect not <laughs> shame so sorry there's a reason so there's some fundamental physical things in the it's not just about the chemistry liquids are very good because they allow things to mix and bump into each other that's a nice environment for things to sort of for molecules to find each other and it's a protected environment Rocky surfaces are much harder because they're exposed to radiation. Unless you have your magnetic field. Unless yep. you have your magnetic field. So, so there are some physical limits on what, what these places What about might stability like. as well? One of the things that people talk about um, in trying to explain the absence of Martian aliens or the apparent absence of Martian life is that on Earth we've got the moon which keeps our axis stable and Mars doesn't have a large moon and so it wobbles on its axis over the mm. course of hundreds to thousands, thousands to millions of years. And so climate will vary on those timescales on Mars. And if you think that somewhere on your, your steps that you have to get to, to get to intelligent life that Matthew was talking about, you have a long-lived process, something that takes a while, then having a climate that changes every fraction of a million years is probably not a good thing. Now, whether that's a convincing argument or not, I don't know. But, but the Earth is, is, is more stable than some of these other places. And let's just talk about the variety, because we talk about life as though it's one thing. Now, even though we don't know what it is, you can just wear a hat that says that. Um, well, how about the idea? So we, let's say we've got two prokaryotes, which are these very simple cells without that aren't sitting inside each other. That's slime, basically. Yeah. So and we all assume that life has to be doing... There's this great Douglas Adams quote that um, humans assumed that they were more intelligent than dolphins because humans have done lots of things. They've invented the wheel and engines and aeroplanes and so often. And all the dolphins have done is muck about in the ocean. And the dolphins thought they were more... Intelligent than humans for precisely the same reason, right? So there's assumptions about what we think, what level of life we're interested in. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I, I mean, most people aren't going to be interested in slime. I mean, I think, well, maybe I don't know. Okay, hands up. If they find slime on Mars, who'd be oh, excited? Hands straight, hands straight oh, up there. fantastic! Yeah, I love slime lovers. Yeah. Like for the record, audience. the entire audience is extremely excited <laughs> about slime. But. If you found, you know, little green men or women wandering around with little antennae, you'd presumably be even more excited. But I think that step is much less likely. I'm, I'm prepared to accept that life can appear quite early, because it appeared early on life, on, a, on Earth, and quite easily. And if we find fossil evidence on Mars in that brief window when there was running water, having hundreds of millions of years, then that would again suggest... It might be quite easy. But if you want to receive radio signals or you want to detect civilizations, then you need something really, really complicated. Now, I guess you could imagine, and I'm sure somebody's done this in a science fiction book, single cells interacting with each other, because that's obviously what's happening in your brain. Uh, all those cells are interacting and they're making you have all those thoughts. So you, you could, I guess, imagine lots of single cells interacting in some way and operating on the... Uh, environment. We don't know of any very good examples of that, except there are jellyfish, which are colonial organisms, uh, where lots, so for example, the Portuguese man of war is not a single organism. It's composed of tens of thousands of different organisms working together and creating a, uh, a single structure. So maybe they could be there on Enceladus or Europa, floating See, I, around. I was just going to mention the jellyfish because I have a bee in my bonnet about the oceans, and I think that if you want to look for alien life, the, the oceans on our own planet are a good place to start. Just because they, if you want something that lives in a different fluid environment, has to deal with different physical parameters, was involved independently, and you want to see how weird it gets. I think we should all just make friends with the octopuses because they're the ones that, have, you know, they're fascinating. Now you, you. You're a bit, you were a bit well, sceptical about that. Well, no, you? no, I think they are, they are astonishing. One of my, uh, if, if anybody here has got any time, you should go on to the Okeanos website or their YouTube channel on uh, Okeanos with a K is a US uh, remote operated vehicle that sends these robots down to, you know, down to four kilometers. And you, it is like being on an alien planet. It's like you imagine what it might be like in Europa uh, with astonishing life forms that, you know, you look at it, you've no idea, I don't know what they are, and you've got these experts telling you. So there is extraordinary stuff down there, you're absolutely right. There is sources of energy, there are methane seeps bubbling up where life can congregate. It's far too deep for any plant life, so this is all animals, it's all animals living down there, uh, getting energy from methane or from stuff that's floating down. 
So, yeah, octopuses... So even in our own ocean, though, we've got this body plan, you know, the man of war, that isn't what we think of as an organism. I mean, you know... Well, it does your head in when you try and work right. out what it is, because it isn't, it isn't an organism, it's a colony. Right. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of corals are like that as well. So they've got lots of different individuals working together. So can I get some practical advice off the back of that? So and we talked about Enceladus, not that practical. Uh, Enceladus has this ocean. We know that, I think you said, Susie, that, that there's, there's a sea floor there because the, when we flew through it was salty, essentially. Uh, and one can imagine in the lifetimes of some of the people here, we might send a little probe to drill through the surface and swim about in that ocean. Yeah. Now, I'm prepared to accept that it might send back one photo of some teeth <laughs> and then you've discovered life. Um, so that's fine. But assuming that doesn't happen, what's worrying me about this conversation that you're having is I don't know what we're looking for. Like, what do I get my probe to look for in the Enceladian Ocean that, that might look uh, like you would, Yeah, well, you'd want to look for... I mean, so there might... You'd want to look for shapes first. If you, when you watch these deep remote-operated vehicles, sometimes it's hard to tell what's a rock and what's not. I mean, I can't tell. The physicist, the geologist, can tell. Uh, but you, you know, <laughs> it looks like a rock to me. No, no, they, it's not a they, rock. They should have sent the geologist. <laughs> well, that's important. You need, you need everything to be able. I've to seen a lot of octopuses pretending to be rocks. Well, indeed, I mean, they do not, that. You know, so there's genuinely. camouflage as well. Um, I think, you know, so the main things you're looking for, uh, if you can remember your GCSEs, or if you're young enough, you may be doing them, Mrs. Gren. So that's movement, respiration, sensitivity, and I've forgotten what the others are, this acronym which defines life. And, so and if you're worried about passing biology GCSEs... <laughs> forget it. We never ask about it again. Once you're 16, you forget about it. Anyway. <laughs> Keep studying through exams, kids. This will do you good. You might turn into him one day. Wouldn't that be nice? Right. So, okay. So we don't know what we're looking for. <laughs> what can we look for? Maybe that's the other way to look at this problem. Instead of coming up with the ideal shopping list, what, what in practice can we look for? So there's a number of things that, that, that we can look for on Enceladus, for example. Um, we won't get to the floor of the ocean. We think it's way too deep. So whatever we send is not going to make it to the bottom. One of the big challenges is getting through the crust. So the, the crust is really thick, 1,000 kilometres more. So drilling down all the way through this incredibly thick ice crust is your first challenge. Um, at that point, you're then under, underneath the ice, and so you haven't got a direct signal back again. So whatever you send is going to have to make some decisions about what it does, um, and getting, getting the data back to you is, is, is quite a big issue. Um, but what we did when we flew through the plumes that came out um, of these big cracks was uh, we, we looked for the kind of things that might, we might see if we went, uh, looked at the Earth. Like this process is called serpentinization, which is just an interaction of, of water and rock. Um, but this happens at the bottom of the oceans. It happens in the areas like these deep sea vents that we, we mentioned earlier where maybe life happened. Um, and it's a, we believe it's quite an important process if you want life to form in a similar way than it formed at the deep sea vents. And there's certain um, byproducts that you can detect and that were detected when we flew over. And that's why we think that, that actually there is a, an ocean floor. The it's made of rock. It's interacting with the water in a similar way. If you think about the bottom of the oceans, and you know more about this than I do, um, it's not like you need external processes. There's no sunlight that ever gets to the bottom of our oceans, for example. But there is a lot of recycling. I mean, and that's the other key thing about life is that all we are doing is just continually recycling. You need two things. You need energy, which passes kind of through the Earth. It comes from the sun. Eventually, it's radiated away as heat. And you have the atoms, which just go round and round. Mm. And you only have so many atoms on a planet. Mm -hmm. And you are stuck with that. And if you can't recycle them, you're stuffed. Right? Right. So, so, right. so, the pro so processes of yeah. recycling... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Physicists are allowed scientific terms as well, you know. Uh, so the processes of recycling are actually really important yeah. in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, can I ask you... It's worth pointing out that when we went through the, the plumes of Enceladus... Mm -hmm. Of course, the devices we had were those... We didn't expect to find that. So you had to repurpose the, the oh, yeah, machine, yeah? So you weren't looking for DNA. You didn't have a little machine no, no, that no, could... No. So that's why we don't know. If that, those plumes might be full of bacteria. We've no idea. Exactly, and this is also the case, actually. It might be full yeah. of little squid. If, yeah. if, if they are, that's amazing, because the, we know the plumes of Enceladus form the F-ring, which is Saturn's faintest, one yes. of the faintest and most tenuous moons. And so maybe that's a, a ring of frozen ice, bacteria. Ice, ice squid, maybe. Yes, maybe. Bigger, squid. Yeah, it's beginning to make me think of the Apollo astronaut... Squid rings, squid rings. Thank you for the audience. Yes, let's do that bit again. Brilliant. Um, I was going to talk about. I was going to say the Apollo astronauts took great delight in noticing that when they vented their urine, uh, it sparkled in the sun as it froze. So maybe we can add frozen squid to sort of incongruous, beautiful things. 
Um, so, okay, so we know, we know, Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. We know how to look for frozen squid snot coming from Enceladus. What else can we, I mean, there's, we can see the, we can see what, some chemistry of the surface by looking down on it. We yeah, can see we can see remote thing. sensing. What, what else yeah, can we get information from? Yeah, so, so one of the reasons... On the other moons as well. On the, yeah, one of the reasons we know there's a magnetic field, uh, one of the reasons we know that there's a subsurface ocean is that we can use a magnetometer to measure the magnetic field. You get induced magnetic fields due to that subsurface ocean. Um, and so that's how we know there's, there's liquid under there in the first place, really. Because so that's a really cool idea. Because yeah. that's one of those questions, like, these moons are a long way away. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can barely see the surface. Mm -hmm. how, does it, how is anyone going to know this notion underneath? So just, just go through that a little bit. Yeah, so, um, so what we do is we take, we take a magnetic field measurements and um, we, we know what the environment should be like. We're sitting inside either Jupiter or Saturn's uh, magnetic field, so we understand that environment. If you fly past, you see it deviates from what you expect. And that, so it's like your little compass, and as yeah, you fly past, it sort of wiggles. It does strange, yeah. Not massively, but enough. Um, our instruments are quite sensitive. Enough that you think, oh, there's an, an extra component here that we wouldn't have expected. And that component comes from the, the subsurface ocean, essentially, an induced field in that subsurface ocean. So even finding out about the environment, um, the, the subsurface ocean, is coming in part from magnetic field measurements, which I think is really fascinating. And this is because a, an ocean would, is a conductor. It, would, it can move, and it's a conductor. Yeah, essentially, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And then the, you need to work out how deep it is. And in Sellers, we know there's a connection to the outside world because we see these plumes. Mm. We don't know whether that connects to the main ocean. And on Europa, which is the moon of Jupiter that people are particularly excited about, we don't know how thick the ice on top is. So there are a couple of missions going, uh, one called JUICE, which is a European mission that will fly past and then go on to Ganymede, which is a different uh, icy ocean moon, uh, but one from NASA called Europa Clipper. And, and the aim of that mission is to go into orbit and work out how deep the ice is so that we can work out what to do in the future. And it's partly magnetic field, partly it's gravity. Mm, right? Yeah, if you're in orbit, you can, you can measure the gravity of so the body. So just tell us a little bit about, where you, so we know what Enceladus is like. We've got this icy shell and ocean underneath and rock yeah. underneath that. How about Europa and Titan? Sure. Yeah, Take one each. I, yeah, I'll yeah. Do. So Europa's an, an interesting world. It's, uh, it's got an icy surface. And the first thing that people realized was odd about Europa was that it has this water ice surface that has very few craters. And so that tells you that in, in the solar system, craters keep time. So you have to calibrate, but over time, your surface gets more cratered. Um, and so no craters means a fresh surface. So that means that something's happened relatively recently to, to surface uh, Europa. Then it was realized that, that underneath, somewhere in this thick ice shell, there's a water ocean. And that's kind of surprising, I think. How have you got liquid water? We talked a bit about energy and energy sources. Uh, and on Earth, we've got the sun that keeps us warm. Europa's freezing. That's why it's got this ice shell. But its orbit moves it in Jupiter's gravitational field, and that flexes the moon, and that's the energy source. So it's actually extracting energy from Jupiter's gravity well. Um, and, and that's pretty much what we know about it today. This is why we need these dedicated missions to, to go there. We know it's a fascinating place, but we don't know whether the ocean is just below the surface or a long way down. There's, there's one set of observations which haven't been repeated from the Hubble Space Telescope, which show what appear to be plumes of water coming from uh, Europa, just as we've seen on Enceladus. Uh, and it's sort of this beautiful ultraviolet measurement where you block out the moon and you can just see what looks like a spectacular fountain. But it was only there during this one observation. It hasn't been repeated. Um, there's some ground-based observations that hinted it. And so that's hopeful because that suggests there's some water close to the surface. And that's hopeful because then we might be able to visit. Um, so Europa's all about water, but, but Titan, Susie, Titan is yeah. an amazing place. Yeah, Titan. Um, so Titan has lakes of what we think might be methane methane lakes on the surface. Um, I want to talk a little bit about an upcoming mission because you might find it interesting. There's a new mission that was just recently been selected um, and its name, I'm going to call it Firefly, that's not its name. Its name is Dragonfly. I get that wrong every time. Its name is Dragonfly and uh, when we think about missions, you know, the first time we go to a planet, we characterize it with whatever instruments we think are the most suitable, which kind of comes back to our earlier conversation. I find this kind of process fascinating. So you send something that might make some interesting measurements and you get some data back. And then the next time you go, you have a much better idea about what to look for. So you might send an orbiter that's going to orbit the planet and give you a lot more information. And then after one or two of those, you think, oh, I'm going to get a bit keen now and try and land on the surface. And the question is, where do you land? And this is a really big question because obviously most of the time when we go to the other planets, you can't go far. You land, you explore, maybe you have a rover, you explore a little bit around the area where you landed, but you're not going to explore the entire surface, even though these moons are relatively small. Um, where the beauty of Dragonfly is that um, it's, it's got eight rotors. It's like a quadcopter. 
and so it's going to hop. The idea is that it hops around the surface and it samples lots of different areas. So we're sending areas of a mosquito. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is fascinating actually to think yeah. about. You know, we're going to be able to move around the surface to areas of interest and explore them. Um, it's quite a bold proposal. Yeah, but... and, and it's interesting because Titan has seasons. So mm. we've seen from orbit, once we've got the hang of seeing through, it's got these thick orange clouds, but with the right wavelengths, you can look through them. There are lakes that come and go, it mm. rains. My favourite Titan thing is that it rains uh, methane on Titan. There's a methane cycle, like there's a water cycle. But because of the properties of methane and the gravity, um, methane raindrops on Titan are about the size of a cricket ball. But they fall slowly enough that you could dodge them. So, especially the weekend we've had here, where we've had some fun dodging, dodging rain. I think this seems, seems quite appealing. So it, it's what? What's the temperature there? About 100, minus 180 or something. Yeah, that's like about that. right. I think. So that, that's, a, a pretty that's very, constant. very cold. Yeah, and so that's why it's methane. But but you've got these lakes. They have complex chemicals in. Like, could there be life there? Well, why, why not? What, what life needs is some kind of solvent. So your molecules need to be protected and able to move uh, and contact each other. And so you need a, a solvent, which is, water is very, very good, and there's a lot of it. But I think as long as there weren't going to be uh, unexpected chemical reactions with that solvent, which is one reason why water is very good, then these hydrocarbons might serve... As, I mean, you couldn't put DNA or RNA in there and expect it to survive. It would, be, it would zap it straight away. But some other replicating molecule might well be alive, but it would be very, very slow. Because if you remember your basic chemistry, every 10 degrees, your speed of your chemical reactions doubles. So you go the other way, and something that takes uh, you know, a minute on, on Earth is going to take an awful lot longer uh, on, so we, in a hydrocarbon talked, lake. Let's just move on a little bit. So we, we talked about some of the things that you do need to happen in order for to have life. And we're sort of mixing up this very, you know, primordial molecules doing something with, with multicellular organisms. But there's some things you need not to have happened. And one of them is you need not to have all died. Yeah. So <laughs> this <laughs> is very this, important. This is true. Yeah. And you were... Tell us about humans and how close we came to uh, not not dying. Well... Uh, as you probably know, the history of Earth has been punctuated by a series of massive catastrophes where probably either large asteroids hit us, which is what got rid of the non-avian dinosaurs, or the massive uh, volcanic events like at the end Permian where 95% of life in the sea went extinct. That's about 290 million years ago. So we, we got through, but lots of other mammals got through, but our species, which is obviously quite extraordinary... We, before we left Africa, or before some of us left Africa, about 70,000 years ago, the whole human population was down to about 12,000 people. Now, we know that from comparing DNA with people from around the world today and doing some fancy mathematics shows that our population was that small. 12,000 in the whole continent. It's not 12,000 people in a village. So it wouldn't have taken much for us not to have been lucky enough to survive, you know, a bit of disease, drought, that would have been so it. So just compare that with some species today, because we know we've got the, um, the IUCN <laughs> like, list, you know, we have endangered and critically endangered and basically all right, and where, where is 12,000 Well, it's not only, on if list? you were 12,000 in one place, I don't think you'd be quite so worried. It's the dispersion that's the problem. Mm -hmm. So your average human group is going to be a matter of tens or, or, or whatever. And therefore, you can, they can all kind of disappear. And one of the things we know about biology is when populations get fragmented because of changes to the environment, and you've only got a small number of them, then random events happen and they just disappear. They just dwindle away. I mean, that might well be what happened to our cousins, the Neanderthals, who disappeared about 35,000 years ago. They, we think, lived in small groups of perhaps a dozen scattered across the whole of Europe, perhaps eight, 9,000 of them and they just went away, apart from the bits of them that are in you and me, because we mated with them. So we've got... A, let's just talk about probabilities in terms of time here, because we need... <laughs> in order to talk to aliens, we need some coincidences. We need probably... For them to operate on the same time scale as us, because if it takes 500 years to say hello, that's a bit difficult. We haven't got the patience for that, I don't <laughs> think. Um, we also probably need something that's around the kind of size we can sense. But in terms of... So you're talking about all of human history. So we've got a few billion years of couple of billion years of slime and then you know multicellular organisms come on quite late and then you know 2,000 years ago writing was coming at you know a bit yeah, longer than ago five. but you know five, five. that sort of order of it was know, a bill the first bit of writing right, yes, a tax man or yeah. something wasn't it it was about beer um, seriously 
And then, so the, the time in which we could have, in any reasonable sense, communicated with aliens is basically sort of 1850s, and, you know, r early radio yeah. until now. So we've got 150 years. Yeah, the first time radio signals went outside of the atmosphere was about 1900 when Marconi right. was okay. able to beam so, them out. So. So what are the probabilities of a, well, say say this has say we've got past all the ifs and ifs and ifs and ifs, the chances of actually being able to communicate with any of it are then lower. Well, again, well there's right? an optimism tax here, right? <laughs> so 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 I think the argument you're trying to make, I think, or that one you you here made is that look, we've only been communicating for 150 years. If you plot 150 light years on a map of the galaxy, we do now know there are of Earth-like planets within that radius, but it's pretty small. It's a tiny bubble on any map of the Milky Way you've ever seen. Um, and so it, even if we live as a civilization another 10,000 years or something like that, then that's still a tiny bubble. And so you can have this galaxy where intelligence appears and disappears, and you all think you live in a lonely yeah. galaxy. And, that, and that's fair. Except that the sci-fi that I grew up watching has spaceships <laughs> shooting across the galaxy and, and you know, interplanetary federations and all the rest of it. And so if you want to imagine that future for us and have that be a likely outcome, then you, then, then you need to worry about the fact that we don't see vast civilizations. Because if you're an optimist, you just say, look, we've got past the hard bit. We're already here. We're intelligent. We've invented music festivals and podcasts, so we're good. Um, and, and, and now the glorious future awaits. And, 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 and that's the bit that, that's worrying. When you, well, when the you question look is, out. where are they? It's like when uh, Stephen Hawking, wasn't it, who held a time traveler party. And they <laughs> advertised it, and they said it to everybody, any time travelers of the future or the past, here we are. Come join our party. And then they had a party, and no time travelers turned up. But do we know that's because Stephen Hawking had a maybe he has a reputation for throwing terrible parties? That could be true. You know, we, no one suggested, no one occurred, didn't occur to anyone that they might be fussy time travellers. <laughs> but this is but this is an issue, right? Because you, I mean, it's we could genuinely be the first. That could be true that we are the first to get this far. To get this far. Yeah. But that's very arrogant, and generally arrogance is discouraged in the uh, astronomical community. No, I mean, well, yeah. I, I mean I've only so. got one example. I don't know about astronomers being arrogant. I mean, it's not about arrogance. We've just got n equals one. We're we're here. I think we're very very lucky. I don't think that's necessarily saying we're lucky and to have got this far, and who knows what the future holds. I don't think that's necessarily so, being so, arrogant. And the Drake equation, when Frank Drake came up with this idea about trying to calculate the probability. Just explain what the Drake equation. So the Drake is. equation is a pretty useless piece of thought experiment in which you work out how many planets there are, and all that's changed, as, yeah. as Chris has said, how many planets there are, chances of life, chances of intelligent life. And then, he wrote, did this in the 60s, he was very interested in the chance of a long-lived civilization. Of course, he was worried about nuclear war. We are now worried about climate change. We should probably also be worried about nuclear war. So in terms of how, far, how long we've got with yeah. podcasts and yeah. music festivals and the rest of it, who knows? I mean, it depends on us. But, but yeah. we do have a little bit more information we could use. So, so the argument that's often made, and Matthew, I really want to know if a biologist would agree with this. I, I, I often hear the argument that life got started quickly. I think you said 3.6 billion years ago yeah. or something. So if life got started quickly, you didn't have to buy that many lottery tickets to win. So no, that's, that's the slime argument. And I'll, I'll accept the universe is covered okay. in slime. But intelligence took a long while. And has only evolved once, at least. Well, in terms of what level. we can use, uh, once birds are very smart. So you know, crows can not only make tools; they can make tools to make tools. But they've probably been doing that for 20 million years. And what have they done? There's no, there's no crow podcast. There's no crow. As far as, as, we, as, far as I know, the crows, not crows think you, you're not allowed in. <laughs> <laughs> so what? In, go on, Chris. Have you got? In, uh, so just so what? There's all these. Which of you? So it's unlikely that we are gathering that there's going to be any immediate signals of life. What would be the thing that would be excite you most? You know, if there were, if there was some little hint of life, would it? Would the most exciting thing? Because the thing, the thing is, so, okay. So before we get to that, actually, here's a question uh, for probably you two. Would there's a huge interest in popular astronomy? Would there be nearly as much interest in planets and the sky if we knew for sure that there was no life? Is that a big part of it? It's certainly effective. I mean, NASA's program is framed as the search for life uh, because that's how to appeal quickly to people. But I, I don't. I, this is where I started in this conversation, right? That I think actually it's a, it's, it's a, it's awesome either way, literally or in way. Either life is common in the cosmos, and we have this much broader 
ecosystem that we're part of and can relate to and think about and explore, and, and that's amazing. Or if we knew for sure that we were the only intelligent life in the galaxy, I just think that makes me want to look up at the sky more. I, I feel the sense of responsibility then yeah, to try, and, sure. try and, and pay witness to the universe. I, I think, think what's so. also interesting is that this is a question that will only ever, I suspect, go one way. So to prove there is no life anywhere else in the universe, yeah. <laughs> that's not something that we're going to be able to do. So I suspect that we'll be looking. We'll be looking for a long time, maybe, and saying we haven't found it, we haven't found it, maybe, 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 um, until maybe the, maybe the answer is yes. But we're not going to look out and say definitely not anywhere. I suspect that answer is not going to be possible, actually. No, no I, mean, I think it was Arthur C. Clarke who said there's, there's, only, there's only two answers to the question, and they're both terrifying. But, but could, could we understand, could we have a breakthrough and understand the origin of life in such detail that we know that the odds are incredibly long? Like, is that, is well, that possible? Nick Lane in UCL is trying to replicate the conditions at the bottom of the sea, you know, 3.8 billion years ago in a big pressure cooker. Um, so if he's able to do it in a matter of years, then I think that would very much suggest that it really is really, really easy, in which case there probably is a lot of slime covering bottoms of oceans all over the place. But this is something that has been tried, you know, so that the history of that type of experiment goes back a long yeah. way, right? At Scripps in the 1950s, in fact, when I did my postdoc at Scripps, they showed me the chemistry lab, which we've just found some bits in the cupboard that's got, they've still got the, <laughs> yeah, the inside of their yeah. experiments on them. Yeah. So just that, that very famous experiment, Miller and So Yuri, this is an experiment by, by Miller and Urey in the 1950s, and basically uh, they got a big test tube, they chucked a load of kind of very, very simple organic chemicals in there, and then they kept on flashing uh, lightning bolts, well, electric charge through it. And they didn't really know what to expect. To their amazement, they got uh, the building blocks of proteins, not of life, but of proteins. They got what are called amino acids, which we've since found on comets. So the fact that they found it in there is not quite so amazing. So what was astonishing was, I think, about 20 years ago, so maybe at the time when you were there, they actually scraped out the inside of these machines and these flasks, and they showed they, that the experiment had given even more than they, they thought. So basically, all of the 20 naturally occurring amino acids, which we have make us up our proteins, they were able to get forming spontaneously inside this, uh, inside this flask. But I don't think that tells us about the origin of life, because this is the building blocks of a protein. It's not a replicating molecule. It's not alive. I mean, it's quite amazing, but as I say, that's probably why we find it on comets and this stuff floating about. So, sort of useful auxiliary information. Yeah, the whole yeah, so yeah. just describe what Nick's doing at UCL then. Um, well, as I understand it, he's trying to get proton gradients and use very simple molecules and trying to see whether he can get them to use that energy source to then start to replicate So he's themselves. taking the closest model we've got yeah, of where we yeah. think life started yeah. and as as in a, as detailed a way as possible, trying to yeah. Rep yeah. let it run. That's it. it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he's got anywhere yet. My guess is he won't. But what he will do is show certain things that aren't necessary or don't help. And so, uh, I mean, if he succeeds, it will be quite as astonishing as getting a message, a beep, 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 you know, uh, this afternoon from, from another planet. But it's going to be life-changing from that point of view. I think there's another thing that, that we, we could maybe discuss, which is about planetary protection. So kind of yeah. thinking about the fact that every time we send something to another planet, we have to be really careful about what we send because we've, we have evidence that some uh, simple organisms can survive the environment of space, actually. They survive for long times and, 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 and can then you know, shut down and when they get to a place which is habitable, you know, off they go again. And so when we send missions to other planets, we're really careful about what we're sending. We decontaminate everything before we send it, and we make sure that we're not populating Mars with our life, so that funnily enough, when we come along in five years' time, oh, we find life on Mars, it looks very much like ours. So that's one really big aspect of what, of what we work on regularly. And even to the extent of limiting the places on Mars we can go, there are places on Mars where people, it's a bit controversial, but there are places on Mars where people think there might be flowing water it's called recurrent slope linear, where you, where you see something rolling down a hill and leaving, leaving a track behind, which might be dust, but it could be water. But we couldn't, under current rules anyway, send a probe there because we can't get clean the probes well enough to have them near water on Mars. And so so let's just talk about the rules then, because, I mean, this, rules only work if people obey them or can be made to obey them. But what are the rules, and uh, is Elon Musk going to pay any attention? Well, that's the thing, right? So the governments are really careful. The government programs are really careful. And we, we you know, as Chris discussed, you know, the places that where we can't go, we, we try to decontaminate everything. 
Um, but there are some kind of rogue elements which are <laughs> less controllable, one of whom is Mr. Musk. Um, and so, you know, we, he recently launched his Tesla car into space with the uh, blow-up person listening to the radio. This is all great. Um, but sort of just out there into space, and early suggestions were that it was going to head for Mars. And, and people maybe celebrated that, but it sent kind of shockwaves through the community because actually, you know, what's the evidence that that entire Tesla has been decontaminated appropriately? Can one rogue element, one very wealthy person that has the ability to develop this technology, then kind of destroy the planetary protection that we've been so careful about? And so I've also met people who think that the way to explore the galaxy, or at least the, the only way we'll ever travel in an interstellar fashion is to send Earth microorganisms, maybe genetically engineered or so on, to different planets to then start. I don't understand. I, this baffles me. I don't understand what that gets us or why that's so interesting. the idea is you're seeding. It's like terraforming. Yeah, so that Earth life you... can survive. And right. maybe I just don't have it in me to care that much about Earth life in general. <laughs> I care a bit about whether I survive and, and the, some of the rest of you. But, but I don't really care about whether our bacteria get to make it to Proxima Sojoy. But there are people who... It's the kind of thing you can yeah. imagine a group of people with the kind of space tech we've got now, deciding that they're going to fund and they're just going to send a probe that, to try I mean, and crash into a planet. When Darwin arrived at uh, Ascension Island, he went, oh, well, I think we should do some colonisation experiments here in the sense of ecological colonisation. You're going to plant some things. And if you go to Ascension Island now, which is really hard, you have to be on a military plane going somewhere else. Uh, but they do have this little garden of things that Darwin, that were pioneer species. That he, he, so we have done that before. So Darwin is, is Darwin the equivalent of Elon Musk in this situation? Well, I, probably, yeah. It was very, I think in general, things have been very bad. We know that when we go places and we leave things, inadvertently, generally, so rats are the, the, the seafaring equivalent of bacteria and they wipe out, you know, seabirds and they cause terrible. We're spending now a lot of time trying to get rid of these things, which we've left on islands inadvertently around the place. So, I mean, I'm, I'm very concerned about yeah. that. And I, I guess it's true, Susie, that like, you can decontaminate. If you're sending a little robot probe, that's one thing. But the moment you send tourists, planetary <laughs> yeah. protection goes out the window, yeah. right? Yeah, people are a big challenge, right? Yeah. So uh, exactly, exactly. That's so just describe how, who came up with these rules? What's the organisation? Who is the space judge sitting? I did meet, I genuinely met a space lawyer. Um, yeah. The lawyers are going to get in there first, aren't they? But yeah, she, the LSE, absolutely. there is one space lawyer. She is the Department of Space Law. Um, but anyway, so but who who is responsible for all this? Uh, it's mostly driven by NASA. So NASA was the first agency in, I think, the early 70s, ahead of the Viking missions, to, to really codify this. And then um, there's an international agreement through through the UN that, that explains what one does and what different levels of planetary protection are and what different levels you need to go to different places. And is planetary protection all about life or is it does it include other things as it, well? It's usually life. One can think more broadly. Somewhere uh, in this festival there's Alice uh, Gorman who's a space archaeologist and people are thinking about the, the heritage. Like how do we not ruin Tranquility Base when tourists want to go and see where Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walk? So there's a broader question here but... I, it's much easier with robots. With people, it's very hard. My favourite solution to this for Mars is that you give Phobos, the little moon of Mars, to the people, and you can go there, and you use it as a scientific station to study Mars, which you only send robots to, at least until we've done enough to establish whether, whether there's life there or not. But I, I think that's actually an interesting question. Even if, even if there isn't life on Mars, and we can be absolutely confident, we looked at all the salty water and there's nothing there, would it be right... Would it be morally right to start terraforming it? Should this... It's the same question as the, the Tranquility Base. Should these places be left? Or is it our destiny, you know, our manifest destiny, to go out and create whatever we want on these planets and worlds? That's a really good philosophical question. I'm going to dodge it slightly <laughs> <laughs> and say that, actually, if you think about colonisation beyond our solar system, and the timescales, we talked about timescales involved, about going beyond our solar system and elsewhere... So people have been coming up with some ideas about getting um, machines that can replicate themselves. So they go to a place, they mine the resources available, they replicate themselves, they send themselves off even further. Because so actually, do those machines make the, meet the definition of life? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, uh, we, we can't survive that long. So you know, if we really want to go a long way, we have to send not us. Uh, and you should go to distant galaxies first, which is paradoxical. But the amount of the universe that you can reach is decreasing 
over time because of cosmology. So if, if you're monomaniacal enough to want the entire universe, you go to distant galaxies first and then, then sort out your local neighborhood after. So, so therefore, the fact that this hasn't happened tells us that no one gets to this point or aliens don't care, don't think like this. But um, Helen's looking a bit shocked. <laughs> no, I think, I think that's fine. I just think that there's a level, there's, there's intelligent life and then there's res life that understands the concept of restraint. Right? And that is not something our species no. has ever developed. It'd be good to see, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there is plenty of life out there, it's just it's more advanced when it comes to having restraint, and so it hasn't, you know, hasn't gone poking its... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that, 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 does, that does relate to one of the problems as to why... I mean, so Hawking in particular was very unhappy about us sending messages out because he thought it was basically good eating here and a big arrow pointing to Earth. I mean, I, I'm not worried about space aliens coming to eat us because... There's plenty of stuff out there for them to eat. We've got nothing special on this world, and they can't... You just no... told us this is the only place life has evolved. Yeah, but that's just carbon. Exactly. You said it was just carbon. You've got the same amount of stuff you had at the beginning. So unless they, they have got a great taste for flesh, which I really don't think there's reason to imagine... Do, do, do you know what the most powerful radio signal ever sent into space is? No. It was an advert for Doritos. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, so that's what you have to, in the case of an alien invasion, that's what they're after, people. Okay. So, so that's, that's Doritos, that not flesh. Okay, we're that okay. We can give them all the Doritos then. But, I mean, there's no reason to imagine that, you know, they're going to want anything else than carbon or whatever. There's plenty, there's loads of it in the universe. So maybe they want our culture, but, you know, that's okay. No, they've had it. They've had 50 years of TV broadcast. Yeah, I think that's enough. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I'm not sure we want to meet. Who would we trust to talk? To? Say we did find some alien life. Assume that we could, we you know we could find a way to communicate them, and it didn't take a thousand years. Have we got anything to say? How who do who do we trust to speak? Like, David Attenborough. <laughs> I trust him to say anything, and I want to hear the report. So it's, it's dual purpose. Unless, of course, they are just after flesh, in which case we send Boris Johnson. Donald Trump. <laughs> okay, I feel we shouldn't go any further. <laughs> it's send Nigel Farage instead of you. Well, it's nice that space is a multi-purpose uh, environment where many people can be uh, can keep things. Fish. Okay, so um, what are the what the, in in terms of in the next twenty years? There are you know we're sending lots of probes out. We're learning more about life on Earth. We're learning more about everything that is outside our planetary limits just in terms of interesting things to do with life what's the most exciting thing that might happen in the next 20 or 30 years what's what might what sort of experiments being done that might point towards life or might say there's no life is there anything on the horizon that's sort of yeah there are a few up? great missions actually we mentioned some of them earlier so juice the jupiter mission to the icy moons is going to get there in the 2030s we've got dragonfly is going to get there and probably a little bit later than that actually um, we've got Bepi Colombo, which is going to Mercury to understand how Mercury evolved. And I think some of these missions don't sound like they're directly related to life, but actually we want to understand how rocky planets formed and evolved it, throughout our solar system so that we can better understand the kind of planets that you're finding elsewhere in the universe. And so really fundamentally these missions are going to help us understand, I think, how life evolved on Earth. From my side, we're building something called the European Extremely Large Telescope, which <laughs> is indeed both European and extremely names. large. It's yeah. bigger than the very large telescope we have already. <laughs> but the, one of the reasons we're building, these are the real names, people. We couldn't afford the overwhelmingly large telescope that we wanted. Um, so the ELT, one of the reasons it's being built is it will be able to take spectra of uh, the atmospheres of planets around nearby stars, uh, possibly in the habitable zone. So it's possible that in 10 years' time, we can point to the star in the sky, say that that is a planet that's Earth-sized, that's about the same temperature as Earth, that has an atmosphere that shows oxygen, for example. And on Earth, the oxygen comes from life. Now, whether that's a sign of life or not, but that would be an amazing stimulus to more research and more adventure. If we could point to a nearby star that might have life. And that says a lot about planetary chemistry as well, because whether it's life or not, it also tells you about geology and yeah. what's going on yeah. the surface and whether it has an atmosphere to look at, you know, all that. Okay, so... Uh, have you well, I, I think it's the things that we're not expecting. So two events just in the last couple of years. I've forgotten the name of it, but the weird spaceship rock that, U -u -u oh, that yeah. uh, came through that whizzed through. Everyone got terribly excited about. And even though it doesn't seem to be a dead spaceship, 
but it's probably a splinter of something. I think that's absolutely extraordinary. Or the great excitement about the, the, the weird Dyson sphere that was allegedly oh, being... Origin star, yeah, being allegedly star, yeah. being built. So a huge, great big uh, structure going around a star, which was the only explanation uh, for the fact that the star's light was fluctuating. And that almost certainly not. It's a cloud of comets or something uh, like yeah, that. Yeah, we found that it, it, whatever it is, it's opake. So it's, it, it's those, <laughs> those stars. But we found an, another set of these stars as well. Fantastic. So yeah. I think these are, I mean... It's what a, about from a, a biology point of view? Like, what, what well, I think those are, the, those are the kinds of things. I mean, if we go to the, the close places we're looking for, you, you've already got it covered. I think it's the unexpected is what I'm really looking forward to. Uh, partly because the dragonflies is a long way away for me, so 15 years or whatever it's going to be. Uh, but the stuff that's going to come and we're not expecting, that's, that's what I'm excited about. Okay, brilliant. Well, we have got to the end of our allotted time. Uh, just before we finish, I'm going to do a few little plugs. This and other Science Shambles podcasts are available on the Cosmic Shambles website, and there's Science Shambles and Book Shambles and loads of other shambolic, shambolic. We are very shambolic people, as you can tell. Uh, so have a look for that. Um, there are books on sale from some of the Cosmic Shambles people out in the bookshelf that way. Um, and thank you very much for listening. And please join me in thanking our three amazing panellists, Chris, Susie and Matthew. Thanks for listening. Remember, Signals, the play that preceded this panel on tour in October, cosmicshambles.com slash signals, patreon.com slash bookshambles to support what we do at the CSN. Back with new book shambles later in the week, new science shambles next week. Have a great week. Enjoy uh, whatever it is you're doing. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.